First Class Fatherhood. That is where Alec Lace comes in with his popular podcast. And one of the most interesting was on a podcast. Alec Lace interviews high-profile fathers from actors to NFL players with a vision to change the narrative of fatherhood and family life. Welcome, everybody, to episode 670 of First Class Fatherhood, a family-made media podcast, and I have got a phenomenal guest for you guys today. Dr. Victor Davis Hansen joins me on the podcast. If you have ever seen Victor Hansen on Tucker Carlson when he joins Fox News as a contributor, you will know, just as I do, he is always so well-spoken, very articulate about what he is saying. He is highly educated. He comes from the Hoover Institution, the same place as Thomas Sowell, another guy that I really love to listen to. Uh, I feel smarter just saying Dr. Hansen's name. I'm honored to have him on the podcast today. I know he has got so many different uh, credits to his name here. I'll give you just a few of them. He is the Martin and Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. His focus is classics and military history. He has been the visiting professor of classics at Stanford University, the visiting professor of military history at the United States Naval Academy, the visiting professor of public policy at Pepperdine. He has got numerous awards to his name. A few of them include the 1991 American Philological Association Excellence in Teaching Award, the National Humanities Medal, and the Bradley Prize. He has written hundreds of articles, editorials, essays. He's the author of 24 books. Uh, Back when I was being born in 1980 in the Bronx, he was receiving his PhD in classics from Stanford University. You guys are in for a very real treat today. Dr. Victor Davis Hanson will be here with me in just a few minutes, so please stick around for the interview. And today's interview with Victor Hansen was recorded on video and is available for you guys on my YouTube channel. So if you'd like to watch today's conversation between Dr. Hansen and myself, please subscribe to First Class Fatherhood on YouTube. Link is in the description of today's podcast episode. All right, and as we wind down the 2022 year here, we get closer to the holiday season. I'm winding down the podcast as well. I got two episodes to hit you guys with next week, including my interview with Dr. Drew Pinsky. Make sure you follow me on Instagram at Alec underscore Lace for my other upcoming guest announcements. And if you want to give the gift of a good night's sleep to anybody on your Christmas list, get over to MyPillow.com. Check out all the amazing sales they have going on from now right up until Christmas. Uh, It's a blowout sale. Their best prices on almost all of the products over there. And if you use the promo code FATHERHOOD, you will save even more, up to 66%. So get over to MyPillow.com. Use the promo code FATHERHOOD. Save up to 66% on your order and knock off a few people on your Christmas list. If you guys have the opportunity, please help me spread the word about this podcast, every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list, and let them know about the show that's here celebrating fatherhood and family life. You guys know it. Father's Day is every day right here on the podcast. And here comes my interview straight up with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen on First Class Fatherhood. Joining me now, First Class Father, Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start just like this. Uh, well, it's an honor to have you here. Let's start here. How many kids do you have and how old are they? I have a daughter who is 40 years old. And she has three children. And I have a son who's 38. He has two children. And then I had a daughter who passed away who was 26 at the time from leukemia. Wow, yeah. I'm just in the beginning of my fatherhood journey here compared to where you are. My oldest is 16. We have four kids ourselves, three boys and then a girl. So uh, if you could, Dr. Hanson, just take a second to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do. 
Uh, I was an uh, I got a PhD in classical languages at 25 from Stanford University, and then I came home to the Central Valley of California, where I helped my grandparents farm um, until they passed away for five years, and then I re-entered academic life at Cal State University campus in Fresno. I did that for 20 years, and then at the age of 48, I went to the Hoover Institution at Stanford University where I commute, still live on the farm where I was born, fifth generation, the same house, and I'm a syndicated columnist. I've written about 25 books on modern and ancient conflict, classical culture, and I work at the Hoover Institution today. Yeah, and I, I really love what you do, uh, and I, I really respect your opinions, and this is why I wanted to ask you, one of the things I focus about here, Dr. Hansen, on my show is the fatherless crisis that we have going on in our society and in our culture here, and in my opinion, I think it's the number one social issue that we have in our country where we're trying to solve all these other social issues, but if we don't get to the core, which I believe to be the family unit, I think that we're just going to keep running around in circles here. So I just kind of wanted to get your take on how you see it. Well, I mean, I think you can make the argument that particular communities in the United States, to the degree that they have cultural, social problems, it depends on the, on the degree which they have a nuclear family. So the African-American community, to select one, is 70 percent of children are not growing up with a father in that household. And I think in most other communities, it can be as high as 45 to 50 percent. 50 of children are not having a two-parent household, or at least the father is not there. And that's a radical departure from, you know, in the 19, just 50 to 60 years old uh, earlier, where most most families had a father present. The divorce rate was much small, uh, smaller, the number of children was much higher. We also should note that the fertility rate has gone in the last 50 years from 2.3 to 2.4 down to 1.6, and that reflects uh, sort of a disinterest or a lack of interest in some people about raising children. The age of marriage has gone up from 23 to about 28, and the age of first birth has gone from about 27 to 33. So p fewer people are getting married, fewer people are staying married, fewer people are having two parent households, and we're having fewer children, and the parents are much older than they used to be. And I've seen all, all these things, and, and I know that the statistics are overwhelming as far as, you know, the, and it's not to say that every kid that grows up without a father or a two-parent household is going to end up in, say, prison, but 85% or, or around that number of kids that are in prison currently right now or in detention centers come from fatherless households. So like the, and it all lines up with uh, teenage pregnancy, teenage suicide, uh, drug use, and, and it all seems to correlate to that one statistic, whereas... Uh, as I said, we try to solve all these other issues, but I don't, I don't think if we figure this out, uh, what is your take on why we got to this point? Where is it that we shifted where, I mean, this, one of the reasons I started this show, Dr. Hansen is because I heard so many young men. When I tell them I have four kids, they look at me like I got four heads and they can't compute as to why anybody would want to even start a family or take yeah. on that responsibility. And I wanted to shift that kind of mindset, but how did we arrive here? What was the major, yeah. uh, well, determining factor? There's four or five reasons, and they're all politically incorrect, so we don't talk about them. But I think everybody understands that they have contributed to the disaster that we're experiencing. The first is, 
the economy now is very hard for a one-person uh, wage earner. So most, whether it's a, the wife or the husband, but both work. That means there's fewer people in the house, number one. And so um, that also allows people to get out. And in the old days, the sort of paternalistic days, the wife stayed home and watched the children. The father was responsible to be a breadwinner. There was a shame culture involved that the father had responsibilities as a man to produce the entire income. That's no longer true. He can't in many cases. So the mother goes out and works as well. Both people then see a lot of different people. There's more chances of divorce. More importantly, the rise of feminism, which was a good thing, equality in the workplace, but it also merged with or was responsible for a sexual revolution. And how that translated to the male was for centuries, the male was assumed to have certain responsibilities. That is, when he dated a potential mate, lifetime partner, there was the idea that sexuality before marriage was either non-existent or it was rare, or if it did occur, there were certain obligations on the part of the male. And that meant that he was probably going to marry the woman in which he had sexual relations in a permanent basis. That's gone now. And so what's happened is if the female partner should become pregnant or if the female partner wants to be married as a as a condition of their sexual relationship, that doesn't there's no obligation on the male. So we have a lot of males now who feel that if they go on a date, they don't have to pay for it. If they don't even have to go on a date, there's no formal courtship. There's no responsibility. If they choose to have sexual relations with a woman, there's nothing asked of them in return. And this is all called progress, modernism, advancement. But in fact, the older sort of parochial and much charactered system had something to it. It, it. it started with the premise that men are by nature kind of louts and they're promiscuous and society needs to channel that energy into a productive relationship. And how we did it was we we made the, the male have responsibilities to the woman that he was dating and that's not there. So a male today feels that he doesn't have to spend any money, he doesn't have to be exclusive in his partnership. He has a series of women that he dates, some of them he has sex with, some of them he fathers children with. But he feels that if a child is there, the state will step in through the uh, the social welfare system and, in large part, uh, take over his former responsibilities. And, but it's also, as, as I said earlier, it's difficult for a one family, for a one wage earner family to exist anymore. And that one wage earner allowed the, the female to be the st- stability in the household, and that that's gone. And then finally. There's been a, partly because of the gay movement, partly because of the women's movement, partly because of the alternative lifestyle, there, and partly because of the academic hatred of what they call patriarchy, there has been, uh, there is no privilege, no bounty, no praise given for a male, female traditional household. 
that is not considered any better or any worse than two gay males, two gay women, one male, one single mom. We don't have a hierarchy of judgment. We don't judge anymore. But historically, through the ages, we know that a heterosexual couple has been, whether we like it or not, has been the bulwark or the foundation of familial stability. And yet we can't say that today, but it's true. And a couple of things, uh, very well said, Dr. Hansen. a few things on what you're saying. Number one, uh, we were in this position, like I said, my wife and I have four kids where my wife did stay at home uh, for thir- the first 13 years yeah. and stay and raise the kids. And uh, I'm a railroad mechanic by trade and uh, hustled a lot of other jobs to make that happen. But we decided together to make that decision that we would do that. And it worked for both of us. But she did get a lot of shame from her friend's side, from her work side, where it was like, oh, that's all you do. We, I think society now looks down on the supposed stay-at-home mom or what they would call the homemaker. And it seems like that's something uh, you're thought of as less if that's what you do. And really, that's the most important job that you can do and one of the most difficult, I might add. And it seems as if, though, we've kind of looked down on that in our society. And the, the fact that we say you need two breadwinners, well, like a, like 100 years ago, people had smaller places to live in much larger families. Today, we have much p- bigger places to live and smaller families. So somewhere along that timeline, it, it seems as though our, our values or what we seem to feel like is important in life has seemed to have been uh, skewed. Yeah, I think people, it's very ironic because... Uh, the feminist movement started out well with the idea that if women chose to be in the workplace and they should be treated and compensated equally with men. But the problem is that a whole new ethos arose that that was the only uh, career path and the best career path and the most uh, rewarding for women. And that's not true. And so we also, this also arose with, you know, Abortion on demand, we had a million abortions per year. That had not been true before. So what we have done insidiously year by year is we've taken the bulwark of Western society, i.e. the female matriarch uh, center of a nuclear family, a woman whose skills are multifaceted from cooking to sewing to house repair to instruction to stability to support all the things that a family needs, and she was the backbone of that family, and we deprecated. We said, you know what, that is not so important. The model instead is a young woman who has got a college degree, who goes immediately into the workplace. She doesn't even think about child rearing until her late 30s. She may or may not marry the father of her child. Uh, It's important that she uh, has views sexuality in the way that men do uh, view sexuality and that was supposed to make a lot of women much happier but what it's done is it, it's been very bad for women because what it's done is it said well you have to get a job and we're not going to respect you or honor you or esteem you unless you do but at some point in your life you're going to have a natural desire to have children and either you're going to have to fight that and say that you're not going to, to give in to it. Or if you do have children, you're going to have to be a breadwinner and a family member, both. And that's going to be quite stressful. And whether you like it or not, you should be a sexualized, empowered woman. You should be, uh, define sex on your own terms, not societies. And that has not necessarily made women uh, 
happier. It may have made men happier because what we did, and we've said to the young male, and I think the male is suffering because of that, uh, you, can, you, you can enjoy your prolonged adolescence. You don't have to, in your mid-20s, have a job, be able to buy a house, have, have a fiancé. What we're going to do instead is you're just going to sort of stay in your mom's basement, hang out, make enough money you know, for a car and music and entertainment. Your parents will take care of your uh, food and shelter. And then you're going to date a series of women. There'll be no obligation on your part if you should have sex or have a child. And that's been very deleterious to the male because we've asked nothing of him. And it's really been hard on them. The female has taken up the slack. There's no doubt about that, Dr. Anson. You're talking about that feminism and, and, and the movement. Here, here's just a couple of the quotes that, that I pull from that era. Uh, this one by Kate Millett, a feminist. The complete destruction of traditional marriage and the nuclear family is the revolutionary utopian goal of feminism. And then this one by Jermaine uh, Greer. Uh, I'm passionately opposed to the nuclear family with its mom and dad and their 2.4 children. I think it's the most neurotic lifestyle ever developed. And we saw that kind of philosophy carry over with the BLM movement of the Black Lives Matter who they had on their website. Originally, they eventually pulled it down after a lot of blowback, uh, but they had it on there. We, we seek to destroy the nuclear family unit. Yeah. And I and I don't understand why people are uh, welcoming this type of philosophy. I understand, like I said, you did too. The feminism movement, good ideals as far as equality for women in the workforce. There's great parts to this, but why destroy the nuclear family? And how in the world would people that support a BLM movement think that that's going to improve the black community when they're suffering the most from this fatherless crisis. Yeah, and when you look at certain data, it doesn't really matter what you say or I say, it just looks at the data. When you look at uh, high school, grammar school, test scores over 20 years, 30 years, when you look at the crime rate, when you look at the illegitimate rate, when you look at the drug use rate, when you look at alcohol rate, everything except for smoking has been alarmingly increasing and uh, and it's a result of that children are growing up without a complementary two-parent household and the re the result of that is uh, they're not having when they get home from school there's not somebody there when they do have somebody there there's not someone to help them with their homework when they do have somebody to help them with their homework uh, in many cases uh, they've already developed habits uh, where there's not a parent disciplinarian that watches and monitors them and, and because they're working. And so I, I think, I don't think anybody says that we should, you know, not allow people or not esteem women who don't want to get married or men who don't want to get married. That's fine. Or there's, there's wonderful single parent husbands and, and wives. But the problem is that in our excess never to be judged in our uh, zealousness not to be judgmental, we we have no standards. We just said that every alternative life is equal to the other, even though the data and tradition show us that a society that has children with two parents at home intact will be much likely and much uh, much more likely to succeed and much less likely to indulge in behaviors that are detrimental to society at large. Yeah, well said. And then I wanted to kind of transition this over to uh, the education right now that's going on in our country. 
particularly at the college uh, level, where I know obviously you've been through the education system, you've been there, done that, but I think it was a lot different, I would imagine, when you went through it than it is right now. One of the concerns even I have uh, as a, with, with a junior in high school that's starting to look at the colleges and stuff, some of the fears from so many parents is that you're going to send your kid off to this college, uh, they're going to come back hating America, judging everybody by their race, and it, it just seems like it's a toxic environment right now what is your take? And also, too, they're coming out buried with these uh, college tuitions that they can't afford to pay back because they haven't developed a skill set once they come out of the college to help them get a job that's worthy of paying it back. So it just seems like uh, it, it's very frightening for right now for parents on the cusp of deciding to send their kids to college. What's your take on it right now? What would be your advice Well, I think we're in, a, we're in a revolutionary cycle because since World War II, all of the data showed that if you had a bachelor's degree – you had enormous advantages in the workplace and compensation, and we felt that we would have a more moral society the more people had bachelor's degrees and were educated. But I think two things have happened. Uh, one, when the federal government came in and removed the moral hazard from the universities, they, by guaranteeing student loans, they upped the rate of uh, tuition far higher than the annual rate of inflation. So now we have this exorbitant college uh, degree degree, much of it with borrowed money, and more importantly, the majors are, are new. Environmental studies, black studies, women's studies, leisure studies, uh, recreational studies, sociology, this psych. A lot of these uh, majors do not uh, educate a ch child or a student in the way we used to define that. That is reading, writing, literature, philosophy, mathematical, computational skills, engineering, science, none of that. So you have a double whammy. You're having students who uh, can't afford college or they take loans out or they have to work. So they're not graduating in four years. In fact, the average graduation rate is six to seven years and half of the people who enroll drop out. But then they leave with a debt of anywhere from forty to $150,000. And these majors are not competitive in the workplace. The employer has found that a psych major or sociology or ethnic studies or environmental studies does not have the skills that they want in an employee. And so I think a lot of people are re-examining this because, especially after COVID, that the building trades or practicality, people who can weld, people who are carpenters, people who are master electricians, they can start on their livelihood in their 20s, 18, 19, 20, they won't have student loans. And as far as compensation, they're nearing their college BA counterpart. So that's new. And a lot of people are questioning whether all of their children need to go to college or if they have a child that just doesn't want to go and, and wants to go into the workplace, that's not going to be socially taboo anymore. But the other part is that the universities themselves, because the government has insured their, their hazard, and they don't guarantee their own loans. Obviously, if they did, they would be much more cost conscious. But uh, they're politicized. 95% of the faculty uh, polls that they only vote for one political party. They feel that the society at large is toxic, too traditional, racist, sexist, homophobic, uh, capitalists and that they have a child for four or five years and so therefore they don't feel they're biased by brainwashing them in an alternative paradigm and they're not apologetic I mean they're not apologetic about it. they feel that that's their duty that, that they have a right to 
indoctrinate in a deductive fashion the curriculum. And the result is that if you look at any poll, university professors' popularity has gone way, way down. It's, it's one of the least respected professions. It used to be one of the highest. Um, things that we never thought would happen, such as violations of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, and Sixth are routine and institutionalized on campus where you can't speak your mind, or if you're, choo you're accused, let's say, of sexual assault, you cannot have legal representation in a hearing. You're, you're condemned as guilty. Uh, segregation, we have segregate, racially segregated dorms. You can pick the racial uh, background of your roommate in advance. We have safe spaces where certain races are not allowed to go. So it's become a, actually a reactionary retrograde institution, and it's tragic. And uh, the admissions are, are not transparent, for especially at the blue chip universities. They, it's felt that they're not as candid as they could be, but we're into repertory admissions so that they don't even any longer represent proportional representation based on race. But certain people, certain groups who they feel have claims against the majority will be admitted in numbers larger than their percentages in the population, regardless of their test scores or grades as a way of re repertory, I guess, reparations against society at large. What that means, if you're a white male and you want to apply to a Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Duke, any of these blue chip universities, whereas in the past, 33 to 34% of the of the of the group were of that of that background, and now that's going to go down to sixteen or seventeen percent, and so that it's in the last two years. So what I'm getting at is, uh, if you're a white male with a straight A average with AP classes, and you've got in the ninety nine percentile on the ACT or the SAT, you're not going to get in necessarily, if at all to a, to a front-ranking university. And that's changed a lot of families, maybe liberal families, their attitude about higher education because we've disenfranchised an entire uh, race and gender and we're not talking about it. But it, and it's fairly new, but that's something that uh, is revolutionary. We knew that we did that with Asian students, that if we were purely meritocratic, that most of these campuses would be 35 to 40 percent Asian rather than 20 percent. But now uh, we're basically saying that we don't want white males to represent the numbers in the general population. So we don't want 33 or 35 percent of the, of the campus to be white male. We'd rather have it 16 percent. And what's interesting about that, too, Dr. Hansen, you, you mentioned uh, the, the Asians, uh, it, also their culture has one of the strongest uh, nuclear family units in the country of all the top four demographics that we have. They have yes. the tightest nuclear family. And here you go. They're the top earners, best at so many different spots in the education. And it's and I, I think that that's no coincidence. Uh, I think, and as you look down that line, as far as like top earners in the country, it would go Asian, Caucasian, Hispanic, African-American. And that also correlates with dads being in the home, Asian, Caucasian, Hispanic, and then African-American. And that follows almost every every other single characteristic or every single statistic. Yeah, it does. I mean, if you look at uh, income, Asians have higher uh, incomes than so-called whites. If you look at crime of every other group, if you look at degrees beyond the bachelor's degree, the highest 
and to be frank of it, a lot of it has to do with the prominent role of Asian women in the nuclear family. And they, they get almost, uh, they don't win any praise. They're, they're characterized as tiger moms, that they're too obsessive. Or you'll hear people on campus saying, we're, we're letting in two of these workaholic Asians. They're driven by their parents. And this, you know, 50 years ago would have been a wonderful thing. But now we feel, well, they just work too hard. They're too successful. And so in a way, we're punishing people who follow a traditional two-parent stable family because the results that we that come forth from that are so um, superior to other groups that don't follow that paradigm we feel that you know as one administrator said to me once well if we let in Asians on the basis of merit even though they're about nine uh, percent of the population they would form 45 percent of the student body at Harvard or Stanford or Princeton. I think that would be great myself because I believe in merit, but for other purposes, we're not gonna do that. And, and this is not going to work out well because what we're saying to other groups is on the basis of your skin color, we're going to put you in a position which traditionally you have not earned based on the meritocratic qualifications of test scores and uh, grades. And though we're, we're not addressing the fundamental problem, if we just went into the inner city and we had a federal policy that did not reward men by alleviating their responsibility by giving money for each child that their girlfriend had, or we encouraged um, K through 12 traditional schooling in the inner city that that concentrated not on black studies or therapeutic courses, but on math, reading. We could solve the problem in, in 20 years. Tom Sowell, my colleague at the Hoover, has written, if we went back and looked at pre-Great Society policies in the 19, late 1950s, right before the Great Society of the 60s, we were on the cusp where African-American illegitimacy rates, divorce rates, uh, small business startups, all of these very important criteria were almost indistinguishable between black and white. And then the federal government came in and said to this community, we're labeling you victims and we owe you this and we're going to alleviate you of all responsibilities by funding all of these programs. And the result was, was disastrous. Tragic. Yeah, because you're yeah. talking about maybe they had a 13% uh, in the 50s of kids growing up without a father in the home. So now where it's a 70, 73 yes, percent. And it's a monumental effect. And yeah. and we do see and you know where this doesn't I, I interview a lot of Navy SEALs on the show here. And it's one of those things where it does, your color doesn't matter when you're in that pipeline of buds getting through because they only are going to accept the people that can make it through the training. And they won't adjust that training based on your race, your creed, your religion or anything like that, because they only take the best. And I think you see that even in like the NFL, like they don't make it like we're only going to take we're going to have this percentage of white this percentage of black the best player gets the position because it's all about winning and i think we yeah. see in so much of our other society where we're not doing that and we need to get back to yeah. it so i would yeah. want to close this out with saying what is the hope here dr hands what how what has to happen for i us think the number one get back to good and strengthen these nuclear families so i think it requires a, a degree of intellectual and spiritual courage to speak out so you mentioned the NFL. So the NFL is 77% African-American. And I don't think anybody wants to go back 
to a non-merocratic 1960s NL or 1955 where very talented African Americans could not play because of discrimination or segregation. And it was not as competitive a, a sport. So everybody likes the idea that the NFL is meritocratic or the NBA, and we don't really care about the racial component. But for some reason, something that is far more important in education, we don't do that. And so we're not consistent, and people need to speak out about that. And people need to speak out about the data that shows that while we're tolerant of non-traditional families that are not nuclear or not two-parent, that we have to say, you know, you're you're fair. To, it's it's a, we admire you if you want to do that, but we just want to warn you that it, you might not have the success statistically that other families do. And then I think we need to also be very candid about the role of women. And I think men have some culpability here. They have to see that women who choose to stay home, homeschool, or be responsible for everything from home repair to to food, to raising children, that that is a more demanding task and as more as important or more important than her husband's job. So when we see these types of couples and the, other, the husband's a professor or a doctor or a lawyer, we don't need, we don't want to say, well, his wife is just a stay at home. We need to say that's all possible because his wife is doing something as as importantly or more importantly. But until we reassess our values, it's not. It's gonna be very distant. If you just look at the news on any given day and you see people like this Sam Bankman-Fried and the Bitcoin disaster, or you see Elizabeth Holmes a little while ago from the Theranos disaster, or you see all of these uh, so-called whiz kids that went to MIT and she went to Stanford and they have all these letters after their name, but they're not moral, virtuous people and they do people a lot of damage. So I think we've got to get back to the idea that just because you went to college or just because you have a title or just because you have letters after your name, it's no guarantee that you are deserving of respect or prestige. And we need to go back and say, if a guy is a master carpenter, a master electrician, or if he works on an assembly line, but he does it very well, and he has a stable family, and he has a wife, maybe it's the wife who will be the welder and the ma- and the husband will stay home and fix things and be a good father, whatever it is, we need to grant that type of lifestyle, that family, with equal acknowledgement of how necessary it is for the country. And when we start being candid, and we're not afraid of being called a sexist or a racist or a chauvinist or all of the deprecatory slurs that people use, then I think it will will be okay. But right now we're silenced. We're afraid to say these things. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. And I know I just recently had uh, Kirk Cameron on the podcast here, and he's somebody, and his sister is taking a lot of heat right now on social media, uh, Candace Cameron, because uh, she's decided to do just traditional marriage movies and movies that only focus on traditional marriage. And she's getting blasted uh, by everybody for being you know, homophobic or exclusive. But yet you can go on to like a Netflix or a Hulu and there's a whole category of just LGBTQ movies or a whole category of just uh, yes. black only movies. But if you have just tradi- a category, just traditional marriage movies, 
that's not allowed. That's a racist thing to do, and that's unacceptable. Yeah, and I, I, think, I, I think I think that's a good point, and I think whether we want to be candid enough, but that 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 asymmetry should show you that it it, re, it results from a sense of anguish or inferiority complex or something because you don't see advocates for the nuclear family films or stories or books trying to say we're going to squelch that or we don't want that maybe in the past they did but right now anybody who says i want to promote the nuclear family in disney movies for example that person doesn't say and part of that is that i want to make sure there's no gay movies but it's not symmetrical. The people who on the LGBTQ don't want people promoting the nuclear family. And I think that's because they realize that their arguments in the last three decades, their advocacies have not uh, led to social stability, at least if it's came at the expense of the nuclear family. And I think we have to be, again, it's honesty and candor. And when people speak up, and say, I'm not afraid of being called uh, all of your expected smears. You can't do anything to me. Uh, I'm just going to speak the truth. As I see the truth, I think things will start to change. Yeah, right on with that. All right. L last thing I want to hit you with here, Dr. Hanson, I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for that new dad or for that about-to-be father who's out there listening? Well, I would say that don't take it nonchalantly like you suddenly got married or, or you suddenly have a child and you just sort of go through the, I mean, whether it's being up all night uh, with a child or who takes a child to the emergency room, the first thing to remember is you have to be at least 50-50 no matter what your job is because you can't just dump everything uh, on your other spouse. The second thing is that uh, there'll be a change on your relationship because your wife or partner, uh, hopefully your wife, will have attention other than yourself. And rather than pout or be small-minded or jealous, you have to say, this is not, this is good because we're including another person that we're not thinking of ourselves. And that, that's very important. And then uh, the other thing I've noticed with young men is as their wives start to have one or two children, and they have to spend more time with their wives. And it's difficult to go through childbirth. They often say things, they go to work and they see younger women that don't have children, or they, they say things they don't mean to, but they'll say, you know, that woman was really hot, or that woman, and usually they're talking about younger women who haven't had childbirth, or they haven't had these responsibilities of being up all night. And so I think it's really important that young men who are not that mature say to themselves, uh, I'm, this is a time, especially as my wife has had children and we're parents to give more attention to my wife and to be, to really emphasize exclusivity to my wife because, uh, she's done a lot for this family and our future. And I think that would be important. Wow. Really great stuff. I love the message. This has been an honor for me. I got to say, Dr. Victor Hansen, you're a first class father all the way. And thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time here on first class fatherhood. Thank you. Enjoyed it. You have been listening to First Class Fatherhood. First Class Fatherhood is a family-made media podcast. Please visit www.firstclassfatherhood.com or www.familymade.com to find out more details. 
You can order First Class Fatherhood Advice and Wisdom from High Profile Dads on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will never depart from it. God bless, and I'll catch you next time.